Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. Thank you for joining us uh, for this special live recording of SLU Law Summations for our Health Law Live series. In 2020, almost 70,000 Americans died of an opioid-related overdose. It is a public health crisis that knows no boundaries, including race, wealth, or even the pandemic. In the past year, the court system has seen some massive settlements against the drug makers for their roles in this crisis. But what does this mean for families suffering from addiction now? And what does the future hold? To answer these questions, we are joined by Dr. Fred Rotnick, board certified in family medicine and in addiction medicine. Dr. Rodnick is the community of Director of Community Medicine and the Program Director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship at St. Louis University. He is also one of the Health Center for Health Law Studies affiliated faculty members and has taught a course with law professor Chad Flanders, a recent summations guest on opioids and the law. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Rodnick. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So, so first, let's talk about these opioid settlements. How many are there now? And how would you want the settlement spent? Sure. Uh, short answer for how many there are, I have no idea. It's like states are doing them, counties are doing them, cities are doing them. Mm -hmm. One of the places that I go to for information is a project called the Opioid Settlement Tracker. Uh, which is a project that is run out of the University of Washington School of Law mm -hmm. by Christy Minnie. And it's a really accessible site where they talk about what each state is doing. They give resources that have been developed on how to look at this issue of settlement, as well as um, creating plans for damages and abatement. So yeah, so there are so many going on right now. And how I would want to see money to to be spent if I was in charge of the gold card, um, I would want it to be used broadly in terms of, this is a unique opportunity to see a big influx of cash. Mm -hmm. What I would not wanna see happen is what has happened in Missouri with the tobacco settlement money where it largely goes into general revenue. Right. I would love to see us look at some of the big buckets that we look at in this work, whether we're talking about prevention, treatment, recovery support, including housing. Uh, we want to look at what does our infrastructure look like in a given city, county, state mm -hmm. in terms of access to care. And the other piece that I think is incredibly important that we don't talk enough about is workforce development, because it doesn't matter how many billions of dollars we throw at this problem if mm -hmm. we don't have the healthcare professionals to do this work. Mm -hmm. And sure, as the program director at St. Louis U for Addiction Medicine Fellowship, I know we need more physicians, right, right. but we definitely need more nurse practitioners, more mm -hmm. physician assistants. We need more nurses, therapists, and the other, um, what I call the secret sauce in this work, are our peer support specialists, mm -hmm. or people in recovery themselves who are uh, trained up in communication skills, some motivational interviewing, and those are the folks who really can not only help patients, particularly early in recovery with support and communication, but they can educate us, um, uh, the other team members, on what it's like to experience addiction, what it's like to experience an overdose, 
and what happens to families and communities as a result. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be pretty powerful um, work. And also, you know, stuff. all right. So kind of on that note, talking about people that have been impacted, also family members. I mean, I think we probably all know someone who has lost someone to, to the epidemic. Um, what does do these settlements mean for those family members? Are they getting a check or or what happens when they see like, you know, somebody settled with Johnson and Johnson? What does that mean just for the average person who might have lost someone to well, the average person? It very much depends on who's putting the plan together and how damages are going to be paid. Mm -hmm. I know for me, it's not something I have focused on much in my work because I have learned from working with family members in this area that they would love to see this money spent so that other families don't go through what they've mm -hmm. gone through when they've lost mm -hmm. someone to addiction. And, and when I say families, my other clinical work has been homeless health care and correctional health care. Mm -hmm. So I've really spent most of my life working with people who have been disproportionately affected by not only substance use disorder, but also um, institutional racism and other problems where we don't really promote health equity mm -hmm. in the services that we provide in the U.S., Mm -hmm. So most of the folks that I meet really would advocate to let's create the system of care that we can to help people with addiction. But then let's also really revisit this idea of prevention. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I think prevention's messages have really been oh, diminished in recent years because we do have evidence-based techniques for prevention, particularly with young people, mm -hmm. but we haven't invested much. I think some, pe some people can be a bit fatalistic when it comes to this work mm -hmm. um, and we need to be more holistic in trying to see how can we prevent that, that young adult from picking up um, you know, their first pill form heroin, their first... Right hit a fentanyl or what, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. I actually just saw like a dare truck running around the other day. And I was like, I didn't even know. I feel like we did a lot back in like what the eighties and nineties. And you mm -hmm. haven't really seen like a big governmental push towards that. But that's a whole nother. <laughs> yeah, well, no, ironically, since you brought it up, I'm going to jump right on that. Um, okay. Traditional dare programs have been shown to either have no effect or that young people who participated in them start using drugs at earlier ages. Oh my gosh. Now, okay. DARE, DARE programs have been updated recently, but we're mm -hmm. still, that's, that's not one of the most effective tools for prevention. So mm -hmm. we have to get back to the science. And yeah. unfortunately in this area, we have not had really the, the rigorous inquiries that we should have scientifically because quite honestly, just like a budget is a moral statement, research programs are moral statements. Mm -hmm. Those who we value and what populations we value. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, we have traditionally not valued people. The U.S. has not typically valued people with substance use disorders. Right. Yeah. So, so back to the the settlements. Um, what do they mean to the average person suddenly suffering from addiction? Will there be any changes to the law? Um, how will that impact their access to health care? Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of stuff. Right. Ideally, um, what I'm hoping the settlement dollars will go to 
is more access to care, more capacity, again, back to the workforce development thing, and also faster entry into care. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally in the US, between 10 and 20% of people seek help for a substance use disorder from a medical professional. 10 to 20%, that's it. Yeah. A lot of people go through what's called social detox, just going cold turkey, gritting it mm -hmm. out. Um, a lot of people um, end up in our criminal justice system because of that. Mm -hmm. But it's something that we have not done a good job about coordinating services or even introducing services into traditional health care. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping with the average person, if the average person has a substance use disorder, I'm hoping that they'll have the, all those, um, knock down those barriers to get into treatment in the first place. What I hope it means for other folks, though, that may not have an active substance use disorder, with the messages and the education we can get out there by what we do know, um, we can hopefully stem the tide on new substance use disorders starting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For, for example, we know there's a genetic component to substance use disorder. We know there's, we're learning more about epigenetics and how um, DNA can be manifested um, and transcribed differently depending on the trauma, the substance use disorder, the mental health that previous generations experience. Mm -hmm. So there's so many ways that we can help people um, be more informed about choices and behaviors they make based on risks they may have in their family history and their mm -hmm. social setting and in other social and structural determinants that might make risky use of a substance seem like a good alternative. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I can think of a few examples of that. Um, so how Speaking of like controlled substances, how can and should these controlled substances be regulated in order to improve public health? Mm -hmm. That's a, I mean, that, yeah. how does that even work? <laughs> yes, because substances weren't really that well controlled, and they well, questions whether they still are. But the classification system from the DEA came into place in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, the DEA was put together under the Nixon administration, as was the schedule of drugs that we have. Um, and it schedules one through five, allegedly based on um, the addictive quality of the substance. Okay. Um, we kind of need to throw that whole thing out and yeah. take a look at what we know now with the sciences mm -hmm. and what they've informed us. And to give you a good example, um, one is uh, THC, cannabis, marijuana, mm -hmm. different components of the same thing is a schedule one drug in the United States, which means technically speaking, the DEA says that it has no therapeutic value, okay? Well, the biggest problem from my perspective of classifying it as a schedule one drug is it's extremely difficult to do any research related to it. Yeah, I have heard that actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so now that the US is all over the board in cannabis, whether mm -hmm. recreational, whether medicinal, whether whatever, None of these products are controlled by the FDA, mm -hmm. except for very limited uses of CBD oil. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it's the wild, wild west out there in terms of what's available, what people are using, the strength, the potency, mm -hmm. the purity. And I, I am not um, against cannabis by any means, but if we want to call this a medication, we need to do the same kind of 
randomized, prospective, double-blinded, placebo-controlled yeah. studies like we do in every other area of mm -hmm. medicine. Mm -hmm. That's just one example of, um, of some of the impact and some of the laws that need to change. Mm -hmm. um, another great example is with the pandemic overlying the already epidemic we had with opioids right. is the work that we do with telehealth. Mm -hmm. um, my mm -hmm. clinical partner is Assisted Recovery Centers of America here in, in, in St. Louis, but we work with over 44 sites around the state to do the telehealth piece of healthcare. We also have inpatient services here in St. Louis. Is, I'm not inpatient, in-person services <laughs> here in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. But what we did when we saw the um, tidal wave of COVID in last March coming through uh, the US, we went quickly from a predominantly telehealth organization to an almost entirely telehealth organization. We kept our doors open downtown because we care for a lot of folks who are homeless and folks who are housing insecure and folks who don't have transportation. But the bulk of our work became online. Mm -hmm. And on March 31st of 2021, the Ryan Hate Act was suspended. And the Ryan Hate Act is important because it had good intentions, but what the consequences of the Ryan Hate Act were, one of them, was that you were supposed, you were not able to prescribe a controlled substance to a patient unless you were seeing them in person, okay? Now with substance use disorders, two of the, two of the main medications that we use for opioid use disorder are controlled substances, mm -hmm. buprenorphine mm -hmm. and methadone. Mm -hmm. And also it's typical when we're helping somebody detox off of alcohol to use benzodiazepines, also controlled. Okay. Well, fortunately, since this Ryan Hate Act was suspended, we were able to start people on medications and we were able to do it by telehealth, on laptops, on computers. We went to phones, we went to landlines. Uh -huh. We were seeing people any way we could really see people. And we adjusted our protocols so that people were able to get their medications and we would have very honest discussions with them about whether or not a urine drug screen was needed mm -hmm. or whether basic lab draws were needed because Quest and LabCorp and other labs had to really figure out how to do their services. And mm -hmm. we didn't have everybody coming into the office that we did in the past. Yeah. So we really, everything became a risk benefit calculation mm -hmm. and we developed based on that. So hopefully the Ryan Hate Act will stay suspended okay. as well as um, we hopefully will see some permanent changes in the reimbursement of this kind of work mm -hmm. by telehealth, by telephone, and other um, virtual ways to visit. Mm -hmm. So, you, I mean, you, what, you're talking a bit about, um, not a bit, quite a lot about the pandemic and how that's impacted um, people suffering from addiction. Mm -hmm. Is do you think it's gotten worse because of that? Because of that act? Because of the fact that you can't see people or couldn't see people in person? People are suffering in silence and by themselves, mm -hmm. isolation. I mean, I probably just answered the question, but <laughs> yeah, all all of the above. Because um, mm -hmm. in the early months of the pandemic, a lot of smaller agencies around the state had to close. 
People were sheltering in place. People had to take care of their kids, their parents. Um, there was a lot of disruption in the system. Yeah. Um, and that's when, you know, but also that forced us to innovate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now we did know that a lot of num- a lot of people died and more people died right at a time we were starting to see some national changes in um, overdose deaths. And a lot of those deaths, particularly from opioids, were due to people using by themselves, right? Mm-hmm. One of the harm reduction principles of addiction is don't use by yourself. Yeah. Also, um, probably a lot of people did not have access to the Narcan they had before okay. that ran the, the generic name is naloxone. That's the nasal spray or the injection that can bring people back from an opioid overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, also, people were more isolated, like you said. Um, we saw in the number in 2020 alone, we saw a big increase in St. Louis City and St. Louis County, for example. Mm-hmm. 31% increase. Um, in overdose opioid-related deaths among Black males and Black females, a 17% increase in mm-hmm. white males and white females. And then all drug-involved deaths, um, we saw an increase in 28% among Black males and females and 8.2% in white males and females. The reason I break that out by race is that I have learned from a lot of wonderful colleagues over the years that we need to disaggregate everything. Mm-hmm. And it also points us to the fact that we're still doing a lousy job getting prevention and treatment services mm-hmm. to the Black community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're not making treatment attractive. We're not mm-hmm. getting it out there in ways we should. So it again, it forces us to innovate, to look at how can we change our messaging? How do we take our lead from the community mm-hmm. to support their work? Rather mm-hmm. than thinking we know best, how do we support what local agencies, local churches, local communities, what are the things they need to promote health and flourishing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't think it comes to a surprise as a surprise to a lot of people, a lot of you know, your colleagues, my colleagues, that there is such a disparity. But you know, I think it's important, critically important for your work to just keep to not letting that kind of fall by the wayside as we go further on to the pandemic, like keep chugging along. So to that end, mm-hmm. what do you see in the in the future as it pertains to addiction and addiction treatment? Okay, Let me, I'll start with some things I would like to see happen. Mm-hmm. Or um, no, I'm gonna start with what we just talked about with overdose deaths. Okay. okay. Another reason overdose deaths increased, especially at least in our area, but this is happening nationally as well, is um, most, almost all heroin now is tainted with fentanyl and other Mm -hmm. synthetics, right? Fentanyl is 50 times stronger milligram for milligram than most heroin, a hundred times stronger milligram for milligram than prescription morphine, okay? Now, some of the other synthetics like carfentanil, mm-hmm. carfentanil, 10,000 times stronger milligram for milligram than prescription morphine. Okay? It's literally an elephant tranquilizer. That's mm-hmm. what it's used for is for big animal vets to do their work. Okay? Okay. The business model around addiction when you're now that you have semi-synthetics at your disposal is 
Dealers will cut their product so that they can cut something that strong multiple times with different agents and then sell it either as a synthetic or say that it's heroin, right? But you can imagine those of us who had organic chemistry back in the day, we did mm -hmm. our stuff with balances, very precise. I don't think a lot of manufacturers of illicit drugs are doing that. Mm -hmm. And the potency is so unpredictable that that's why people are dying in these really high rates since fentanyl hit the market. Because mm -hmm. people literally don't know what's in their product. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that almost all the fentanyl and heroin in St. Louis has high dose methamphetamines in it. And people are even buying high dose meth and cocaine and finding there's fentanyl in that. So the product is incredibly unpredictable in St. Mm -hmm. Louis. Um, and that's the other thing that um, when we talk about what we see going on, the other piece that I want to make sure I mentioned too, when we talk about the, the overlay of the pandemic with this work is the role of alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, normally about 90,000 people die every year from complications from alcohol use disorder, but we don't talk about it, right? Because no. it's legal, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, the stigma's not there. You can go to a local grocery store, get 10% off if you buy six bottles of champagne. Right. Yes. On Wednesdays, you can get 15% off. Um, but what we saw with lockdown is mm -hmm. a lot of people turn to self-soothe with mm -hmm. the legal substances, yeah. um, with alcohol, with um, nicotine, tobacco, mm -hmm. and sometimes with cannabis. And I haven't seen numbers from 2020 yet for tobacco and vaping, but we know oh, yeah. that vaping is a huge public health issue, especially mm -hmm. for young people. Um, and we don't know what's going on in the brain with high dose nicotine or high dose regular cannabis yeah. use. Um, so those are things that, again, are trends we're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, again, all the more reason to find new ways to get new preventive messages out there, new mm -hmm. ways to reach community. We do a lot of work at ARCA with Prevent Ed, formerly known as NCADA here in St. Okay. Louis. Mm -hmm. We work together to get those messages out, especially to communities that may not have them. Mm -hmm. Now, let's look at what we can take a look at other things moving forward on a more positive note. <laughs> As you can imagine, if I didn't have a positive note, I wouldn't have the glamorous career that I've had <laughs> in homeless health care and addiction medicine. Right. right. But um, particularly in this work with addiction, we need a new model for care in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, the gold standard for whether treatment, whether it's um, psychotherapy or medication therapy or whatever kind of therapy, 12-step, is retention and treatment. Okay, mm -hmm. which means if you keep coming back, we're doing great. Okay, we don't do that in any other area of healthcare. Mm -hmm. The goal is people to self manage and not come back to their health provider that often for illness, right? So, we really need to find ways to move from detox if necessary to treatment to recovery to flourishing mm -hmm. because flourishing and thriving is really the goal that we want for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so I spend a lot of time when I talk to community organizations about that model, and then we need to figure out what are milestones among that in that model so that we know 
how we can make suggestions to our patients and to our families mm -hmm. when one medication might work better, when another medication might work better, when therapy can be adjusted based on life skills for where people are, where we're mm -hmm. looking at um, education interventions, job security, housing security, all these things can be built into a more standardized treatment. Of mm -hmm. course, everybody's got a different story, but if we can create some models of care that help us identify when a patient needs more intensity or less intensity, mm -hmm. that's what we do everywhere else in medicine. Right. So um, right. I look forward to that. Um, more integration of care. Mm -hmm. um, we have not done ourselves big favors in the world of addiction medicine over the past decades with what we've offered as best practices. Mm -hmm. And a lot of programs now are still not evidence-based. Um, programs that refuse to help people uh, with medications used for opioid use disorder, mm -hmm. or tobacco use disorder, those programs can set people up for more harm than good especially mm -hmm. when people come back from that program mm -hmm. to a home situation that hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. um, I'm excited about our fellowship at St. Louis U because we are training um, physicians to integrate addiction treatment into their primary care services. I'm okay. working with a few uh, physicians in slew care right now. Mm -hmm. One is a hospitalist in internal medicine. The other one does mostly outpatient care on how we can create transitions of care. Mm -hmm. once, once somebody's ready to engage in treatment, how do we get them on what they need at that time? And then oh. how do we create a warm handoff for that person mm -hmm. to the um, outpatient or ambulatory care setting? Mm -hmm. And then um, other uh, two other things, um, non-addictive meds for substance use disorder. Okay. No major epidemic has ever been successfully treated, especially one around substances with an addictive substance. Mm -hmm. We tried that with alcohol, with benzos. We've tried that with cocaine, with opioids. Mm -hmm. We need to really invest in um, medication development mm -hmm. because one of the problems that really came around to bite all of us, including physicians, were we fell for the fact that we were told opioids don't create a addiction if the person's in pain. Mm -hmm. Shame on us. We fell for that. Yeah. And as a result, we have not been very assertive in pain management. Mm -hmm. Now at mm -hmm. St. Louis U, one of our docs, Daniela Salvamini, who's the chair of pharmacology and physiology, mm -hmm. she's in the big Doisy Research Tower on the corner of Shoto and Grand. Um, she's been recognized internationally as a researcher to look at non-addictive interventions and medications at a cellular level for pain. Cool. And then the last thing, speaking of pain, <laughs> we need to do a lot better at chronic pain management in the mm -hmm. United States. Um, again, uh, we have not traditionally covered a lot of things like physical therapy, occupational therapy, mm -hmm. massage therapy, mindfulness, other interventions. Mm -hmm. And as a result, for many of our patients, the only intervention we had was a pill. Right. Well, mm -hmm. chronic pain happens in a lot of the populations I work with, but it also happens as a side effect of aging. Well, we need to focus more, less on a, less on a pain scale and more on a functional scale mm -hmm. and help our patients and other people we work with be able to do the things that are important to them.
right. and help them function more effectively um, mm -hmm. without um, have without reaching first for something to dull the senses and to dull. Yeah. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> You've got some high goals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm 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 glad we have someone like you kind of leading the home. So thank you for you know taking the time with us today. Um, it's really informative, and I appreciate that. And thank you to all of our listeners, those of you who tuned in live. Um, you can join us September 8th at noon for Professor Rob Gatter. We'll be talking vaccine requirements and max, mask mandates and all those gory details of the um, current pandemic and this pandemic. So we look forward to that. Thank you for this afternoon, Dr. Rodnick. We'll talk to you later. Thank you so much. And I so enjoy my work with the Center for Health Law Studies. So it's been a pleasure to be with you today. I know I, if they if they were they're on here and they could if I would allow them to unmute themselves, they would say the same exact thing. So we're, we're glad to have you as part of our community. Um, so thank, thank you. you. Bye. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.